Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. When you think about ghosts, just a standard average factory issue specter, what era is it from? For most people, the answer is the Victorian era, and for most people, that's a sort of hazy approximation of around 100 to 150 years ago. There's a reason for that. The English-speaking world went crazy for spirits around 1850 in a way that was unprecedented. So what caused our fascination with ghosts at this time? Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hi. And we're going to talk about, I'm calling the topic Victorian occultism. Mm-hmm. That's maybe not like the most accurate <laughs> title I've ever come up with. It's probably not the least accurate either, but it's, it's maybe not bang on because we're not only going to be talking about occultism today. We're also going to be talking about spiritualism. They're two different things. We'll get into the nitty gritty details at some point yeah. and um victorian is maybe not quite accurate either we're, we're covering a slightly larger span than specifically the victorian era but it seemed like the quickest way to evoke sort of the time period and the feeling that i was going for so hey why not mm-hmm. uh they only let you put titles that are so long in the feed so <laughs> here we are i read an interesting quote which now i'm really regretting uh not having written down that has been more and more of an or it addressed something that's been more and more of an issue for topics that i've talked about recently like i'm, I'm thinking of uh, especially alchemy which i just did um th- there was a scholar I'll, I'll put his name in the notes but um to, to summarize his quote basically what he said was like when you're talking about these esoteric topics you can't only talk about them in a historical context yeah you have to sort of engage personally with the philosophy even if you don't necessarily believe it yourself you can't only look at the historical uh happenings it's it's absolutely vital to to engage uh emotionally or philosophically and and that's something that i've been trying to express as i've gone through topics like you know mormonism or you and i did the the uh the witch trials um Mm -hmm. at one point or or alchemy like you kind of have to get in a little bit and i struggled to uh to express that with miller because it is you do kind of get get it in your head and you start working it around even if you don't necessarily buy into it and Mm -hmm. that absolutely ended up being the case with uh with what we're going to talk about today uh as well so 
Yeah, I, I guess I guess that's just to say I know this isn't our usual history stuff, and I think that's okay. I think mm-hmm. you know you can only do the Battle of Waterloo so many times before <laughs> that kind of stuff gets a little bit old. It's it's nice to branch off from the normal stuff once in a while, and and I really enjoy doing those topics. Mm-hmm. But it does it does involve uh, a certain type of engagement that it is a little bit beyond the normal you know political or military history stuff. So. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stick that guy's name in the notes and, and probably the the specific quote because he put it he put it much better than I did, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think where we're gonna start is kind of where uh, Miller and I left off with alchemy, which is more or less the the Enlightenment, the the scientific revolution, the the sort of age of reason as they call it. Right. Um, because what that did to alchemy was really kind of take out this link between the spiritual, the philosophical, and the um, sort of practical aspects of alchemy, where we kind of figured out like not really any of the stuff that alchemy said happened uh, actually happens. Yeah. And it takes the wind out of the sails a little bit, right? Because alchemy was all about this sort of relationship between the physical and spiritual worlds. I don't normally like really heavily encourage people to listen to one topic before another. Alchemy might be helpful with uh both parts of of victorian occultism because it's really a follow-up in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. uh, i'm glad we're doing it when we are it makes for a nice little package yeah i I think those topics fit together really well yeah so the issue with the age of enlightenment in general is is that there's a couple of major social trends that come uh just after the age of enlightenment that kind of get packaged up into uh what's known as romanticism the Romantic reaction to the Age of Enlightenment is caused by a number of things. Number one, the end of the 18th century. So like the Age of Enlightenment usually gets put kind of the entire 18th century, starting mm-hmm. around 1700 or a little bit before, up until the, the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. The problem with the French Revolution's ties to the Age of Enlightenment is that, you know, the whole terror thing and like all the killing and... <laughs> terrible despotism and all of that that comes out of it (laughs) yeah Um, because like they went really hard on the age of reason kind of stuff within um the the reaction to uh the old regimes during the french revolution right so you get robespierre with his uh cult of the supreme being he actually took and re uh uh rededicated uh notre dame cathedral to this supreme being who like it's this like deist concept of you know, a very hands-off creator who kind of sets mm-hmm. the universe in motion and then walks away, right? Um, you've got the, uh, you know, switching to metric time, switching to the metric calendar, all of these very, like, rationalist concepts that most of Europe saw as being, like, a really strong overreaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the reason behind that was that, you know, the Catholic Church wasn't necessarily... Uh, the most positive organization in pre-revolutionary France. Um, a lot of what happened during the revolution was kind of uh, pulling out the the financial ties that the Roman Catholic, Catholic Church had developed within France. And it, it went a little too far, mm-hmm. just like most things within the revolution. <laughs> That's true. But the revolution also gave basically everything it touched a bad reputation. As we said, all the executions and political unrest, all of that. So... That makes rationalism a little bit less attractive than it used to be. You're also looking at the rise of the Industrial Revolution, which 
it's it's kind of hard to say how much of a direct effect or or a, a realized effect this had but it tended to pull people out of the countryside into the cities mm-hmm. and there was this perceived dysphoric effect that it creates with this lack of a connection to nature basically yeah for sure again how much of that is actually true and how much of it is kind of invented within the romantic era as a as a an excuse almost for the existence of the romantic era itself is kind of hard to say but you can certainly see something of a a link there and a lot of what you'll get out of the the romantic era in terms of uh art and uh philosophy all sorts of things is this idea of like we need to get back to nature we need to increase this this connection to nature that uh we've, we've somehow lost by becoming slightly more urbanized and slightly more mechanized in general, the Romantic era ends up being, it, it ends up having this real uh, emphasis on a personal connection to whatever you're doing. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it ends up being uh, an artistic movement. So you've got your Byron and you've got your Beethoven and all of these like very chaotic figures in, mm-hmm. in art, right? There's this, uh, this concept of like this overflowing of, of emotion within your art. There's yeah. this, uh, you know, uh, create the act of creation has to come from a place of, of raw explosion of emotion right you can't mm-hmm. have this calculated creation it has to be almost kind of takes away the authenticity of it if it's yeah. calculated that way yeah exactly but the thing is this actually bleeds into a number of other places uh like science where there's this idea i mean the term gestalt isn't going to come up until mm, around 1890 or so but it is this idea that knowledge isn't just about taking things apart and looking at each piece of it there is something greater than the sum of its parts in, in mm-hmm. any uh, system that exists. And so there's this focus on the, the, the relationship between, for example, the botanist and the plants that they're studying, and that there has to be this, this emotional connection for them to truly understand what's happening because there's this, this signature within uh, creation, within life that is spiritual in a way. Mm-hmm. And it becomes really important you've, to, to these people that, you know, well, sure, that's how you know, that's how these mechanisms work chemically. But also mm. there's, the, you know, there's this, this spark, there's something more there. And uh, you need to strive to understand that, that full system uh, in order to really understand it. And people start looking outside of the standard kind of scientific method to learn about, uh, you know, especially biology, but all, all sorts of different fields of science. Mm-hmm. In the United States, the way this manifests is... Uh, in something known as the Second Great Awakening, uh, which I've talked about before on a, uh, on other topics. But it's this period, essentially 1800 to 1850, where there was this massive religious revival, um, specifically in Baptist and Methodist uh, denominations, where there was this new focus on a very personal relationship with God and this rejection of Enlightenment ideals, which had been kind of a cornerstone of the early United States, right? Like when you look at Jefferson or, or Ben Franklin or, or all of these guys who were um, very much about like a, a rationalist system of government, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people within the United States, you know, not 40 years later who are going like, well, that's all well and good, but what about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, may- maybe this isn't everything that there is to life. It's still that romantic idea of like, maybe there's more here. Maybe there's a, a personal connection that needs to exist. And so you get these, you know, revival tent, you know, traveling uh, uh, pastors who are trying to convert all of these people to uh, to their specific denomination of, of Protestantism. And this is the movement that 
Seventh Day Adventists come out of. This is the denomination or the the movement that the Mormons come out of. It's all a very like emotional, very personal form of uh, religion that starts cropping up. Yeah. What does this all have to do with like ghosts and seances? Right. Like <laughs> it, we're we're getting there. I know. I'm just trying to like cue everything up. There's also this idea, which is actually kind of a, an alchemic idea, if you've listened to the other episode, of something known as a primitive Christianity. There's mm-hmm. this idea that there was a better form of religion that used to exist and we've lost it somehow, that there's been this spiritual decay that's been going on uh, for time immemorial. Mm-hmm. This revivalist movement was absolutely searching for that better form, that earlier form of Christianity. But the idea of the nature of God within all of this is that God must be a compassionate being. This is like very much like a rejection of the whole like Old Testament fire and brimstone style God. This is much more of a like, listen, if there's an all powerful, all loving God, um, you know, for example, in the Baptist, in the Baptist movements, if there's an unbaptized child that dies, like God's not so mean that he's going to send yeah. that child to hell, right? There must be something. He's presented as a more compassionate yeah. figure than maybe in previous yeah. depictions. Absolutely. This is where we start getting into some of the more spiritualist stuff that we're going to be focusing on for the rest of this part. Mm-hmm. There was a man named Emanuel Swedenborg. Uh, he lived 1668, or sorry, 1688 to 1772 in Sweden. So, yeah, I know it's. <laughs> Bit of a joke of a name. Um, he had this weird little side. I hesitate to call it a cult, but that's nearly what it was. He was a he was a charismatic preacher even before this movement actually really came okay. up. But there were people that are part of the Second Great Awakening who uh, were familiar with his teachings, and he made two major claims that are really important to these people. Number one, that he was able to communicate with the spirits of departed humans. Okay. So not angels, not God directly, but people who had lived and who have died and who have moved on. Um, and that these people were able to impart wisdom from God to humans. Okay. Um, again, another alchemic idea. This is what would be called theurgy, right? But in alchemy, that would normally be angels rather than uh, the souls of humans. Mm-hmm. The second big idea is that there wasn't just one heaven and one hell, hmm. but that there are various spheres through which spirits progress okay and that the state of the soul at the moment of death isn't this like it's it's not a snapshot it's not this moment of crystallization that spirits have the capability to continue to learn and grow and and improve and all of the things that you can do while you're alive after death because it doesn't make sense uh to him that you've got this tiny little window of of time on earth and that determines the rest of your uh, existence. And so instead, the soul can continue to improve even after death. And that means that souls uh, or spirits or ghosts or whatever you want to call them are active um, agents, right? Right. They have have agency, they have the ability to communicate, they have the ability to uh, learn all of these things. And eventually they can work their way through these various levels of, of... you know, afterlife places, uh, call them what you will. So are they considered to be existing in a different sphere from people or are they in the same sphere as people because they are able to interact? They are in the same, they, they have the capability to be within the same sphere as people, which is a, a gross rejection of like a standard, you know, for this time Christian idea of there being, you know, very 
two very separate worlds, a, a spiritual yeah. world and a physical world. Um, they're saying, no, this stuff all interplays mm -hmm. and we may not be able to see it or but interact like with it necessarily. Between... Exactly. Okay. But there are people who can. And this was really attractive to a lot of these uh, second grade awakening sort of fringe movements yeah. because this gives them uh, an opportunity to explain a compassionate God who allows uh, um, the further development and growth of people who have died and mm. therefore gives everybody a chance to eventually get to paradise. Yeah. So is this kind of like a hierarchical system where you've got like heaven at the top and like the worlds are kind of in the middle or like these spheres are in the middle with like earth being like second from the bottom to hell or are these realms of existences not necessarily on like a scale um i mean there there is a scale but it's it's more like uh earth is off to one side and then there are okay. and then there's a hierarchy of of various afterlives you could be in right. so there are various hells as well as various heavens and it's kind of like well how bad you are determines how right. high up or high down you are on the scale it's very uh it, it's it's almost got a, a mildly karmic uh, yeah well i was gonna ask next like is this somehow like is this influenced by ideas of reincarnation because like the, the concepts are sort of parallel yeah the early spiritualists were strictly not proponents of reincarnation mm -hmm. specifically because they do see themselves as uh christian now there are a lot of christians who don't see spiritualists uh as as christians, as christians. they see them as a as a splinter group a, a, a heretical group even mm -hmm. but these people are seeing themselves as explaining a portion of christianity that up to this point hasn't had a great um explanation in their opinion so as far as they're concerned you you only have one life on earth but once you get to the afterlife you still have the opportunity to advance yourself to the the heaven that's promised in the bible basically right. okay there's one other guy that i want to mention before we really get into the you know the the stuff you normally think of with, with <laughs> spiritualism franz mesmer Again, he's also a little bit before this movement. Franz Mesmer was... His main theory was something known as animal magnetism. Okay. Did you ever talk about this in, in psychology? Yeah, yeah, this rings a bell. He, he gets <laughs> talked about in like really early psychology for some reason. Like that history like, of psychology stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's one of those guys who gets linked to psychology in mm -hmm. a way that like really has nothing to do with actual modern... Like makes actual psychologists cringe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, he's for a slightly better reason than a lot of them. But his, his original theory, which has, you know, very, very long since been discredited, was this idea that there are... Uh, he, he believed that he found a new fluid within the human body that was influenced by uh, the moon, the same way that the oceans were influenced by the tides. Yeah. So this is kind of really emblematic of the romantic era incorporation but also rejection of uh the the age of enlightenment so he looked at all of isaac newton's work on the tides explaining the tides by the gravity gravitational pull of mm -hmm. the moon and went well not why not the human body also like why not uh that having an effect on the human psyche right um and he began trying to explain um various mental illnesses by the movement of this this humor within the body mm -hmm. um he also believed 
because of a series of, of uh, experiments that he did with a, a, a mentally ill woman, I, you know, the, the specifics of which are long lost to time, mm-hmm. um, by placing different magnets on her body because he seemed to think that gravity was the same as magnetism. Yeah, there's there's a lot of bad science in here. But he, he placed a number of magnets on her body right. to ostensibly affect the flow of this uh, fluid within her body. Okay. And she claimed that not only could she feel something rushing through her body, but that she felt significantly better. Her symptoms were significantly decreased. And so he named this animal magnetism. Okay. That part has long since gone by the wayside. However, the other thing that he did was... He believed that he that that one person could affect the flow of another person's uh, magnetic fluids, right? Um, basically through willpower, and so he actually came up with something that's surprisingly similar to Reiki, where he believed that mm-hmm. he could, you know, just by moving his hands or just by sitting near a person, etc., uh, could affect their mental state. And what he kind of accidentally came up with was the root of modern hypnotism. Oh, okay. Which originally was known as mesmerism, named after him. So mm-hmm. the, the word mesmerize comes from his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he learned how to hypnotize people. He didn't call it that. He had no idea why it worked, but mm-hmm. he did learn how to hypnotize people. So basically, he, you know, all hypnotism is, is putting someone in a highly suggestible state, right? Which has dubious effect, uh, helpful effects in some applications it's helpful in a lot of applications it's not really because you know being that suggestible also opens you up to you know it makes you very vulnerable it, yeah yeah that's probably the best way to put it yeah um but you know who did love hypnotism was uh stage performers because <laughs> as long as it's been around for helpful reasons it's also been around for the whole get somebody up on the stage and make them cluck like a chicken reasons yep. it's very entertaining <laughs> And basically, ever since Mesmer uh, discovered this, it's been used for those reasons as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, you said. I've heard of studies where they've hypnotized people and then done like surgery on them. Yeah, without anesthesia, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it's got it's got incredible implications. It's just it's 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 so imprecise even today, even though it's been around for two hundred yeah. years, that we don't really understand it that well. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I've heard of the same thing, you know, uh, anesthesia-free surgeries with, you know, basically no pain afterwards. It's insane. Yeah. So we've got people doing stage shows with hypnotism. We've got Swedenborg, who's claiming that there is this uh, sort of alternate esoteric explanation to the way our universe works and the way that uh, our lives and deaths work. Mm-hmm. And you've got this religious movement in the United States that is trying to explain a personal and compassionate relationship with spirituality. And I should note, like a big portion of the revival experience is this ecstatic experience of hours and hours at a time of worship and faith healing and things like that. And there were plenty of these uh, revivalist uh, pastors who would incorporate things like hypnotism into their shows Mm -hmm. because they believed that if they could show people, you know, with their own eyes, uh, a seemingly impossible... uh, Like um, visual evidence of... Yeah, that it would be that much easier to convince them of the reality of that religious truth. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of that sort of faith healing stuff that's still kind of... You you 
you still see it around today that would be very familiar still in that setting almost 200 years ago. And, and hypnotism really just opened up the door to that. And then in 1848, in Hydesville, New York, a slightly haunted house, having a, a, a family uh, living in it, uh, the Fox family, started hearing weird noises at night. Scraping like furniture was being moved around, thumping like somebody was walking or, or banging into things. Mm-hmm. And they started getting very, very concerned, <laughs> like really scared. This was, a, this was a family of five. There's a, a mother, a father, and, and three sisters. And finally, after this had gone on for nearly a month, the youngest girl, Kate, decided that she would stand up to this spirit. <laughs> she confronted it. She uh, called out to it, challenged it, and uh, asked them, uh, calling him Mr. Splitfoot, uh, which, is a, which is a slang term for the devil, to reveal itself, basically. Mm-hmm. And when she spoke to it, these thumping noises responded to her. Uh, she asked it to tap out the age of the girls, and it did so properly. Mm-hmm. And basically everyone lost their minds. Yeah. <laughs> they called the neighbors over to see what was going on, to get more witnesses, basically, to yeah. prove that they weren't crazy. And they quickly worked out a system of, uh, you know, like a, co- a coded system for the spirit to respond yes or no mm-hmm. to uh to questions landlord um, tenant agreement like <laughs> <laughs> you can live in our house but you got to be chill <laughs> no noise after 11 it gets yeah. real late i gotta be up so early in the morning um they also worked out a spelling like a a spelling system so that they could the, the spirit could write things out um the christmas lights <laughs> <laughs> yeah the christmas lights after a little while the the spirit identified itself as uh, Charles B. Rosna. Right on. And claimed to be a peddler who had been murdered about five years before and buried in the cellar. So the first thing that the family did was go and try and figure out who had been living in the house at that point in time. And there Mm -hmm. was a, uh, they figured out it was a, a Mr. Bell who basically the entire town ran out of town on the assumption that he had murdered somebody. Mm hmm. Uh, because the spirit said so. And the reason that we've been talking for so long about all this other stuff is that it's really important to understand the context in which all of this is happening, right? 1848 is like towards the end of this Great Awakening period. Uh, Hydesville, New York, like upper state New York, was one of the most, I mean, at the time, the, the common conception was it was the most active in this revival movement, one of the most active areas in the in the country. Later analysis has shown it's not really much more active in revivalist than than other places in the in the country. But it was so infamous at the time that it was known as the burned over district. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there was no fuel left to feed into the fires, meaning people to convert. And so these girls were growing up in this climate of faith healers of. Um, splinter groups like the Seventh-day Adventists or like the Mormons who were preaching various different types of Christianity that didn't quite Like Christian vibe. spinoffs. Yeah, they yeah. didn't quite vibe with the standard sort of uh, Protestantism. Mm-hmm. They were growing up with uh, these ideas of what like the what the what the afterlife was like. It's not like ghosts had been created whole cloth in 1848 or something like that. The idea of spirits 
kind of hanging around for a while has been you know that's that's existed as long as as people have been wondering about death it's just that um this specific type of communication with the dead was somewhat new in at least in in western society the idea that spirits once gone weren't sort of just waiting for for doomsday basically mm-hmm. um was was new the idea that they had any sort of agency beyond the veil was new the idea that they could talk back was new and these girls had grown up in that climate mm-hmm. as had all the people who you know their parents uh, all the people who ran mr bell out of town all of them the idea that a spirit was communicating with these girls while miraculous was also not it was confirming a lot of things that they already were suspecting were true. Yeah. Uh, that they were immersed in the culture of. Yeah. Kate and her sister Maggie, who was 15 at the time, met uh, some friends of the family, uh, Amy and Isaac Post. And they lived in in Rochester, which is really the, the center of this uh, mm-hmm. uh, revival movement. And uh, the Posts were radical Quakers. The Quakers have been in the United States for nearly as long as the uh, 13 colonies were in place. Yeah. They were originally basically religious fugitives uh, for being seen as kind of extremists in Britain. But they were also cutting edge in terms of what I suppose you could call social justice at the time. They were pacifists. They were abolitionists, uh, tend to, tended to have a very progressive uh, view towards uh, women's rights at the time. Mm-hmm. They were this. They, they were really the center of that uh, progressive movement. And, you know, you get all sorts of other things mixed in there, temperance and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kate and Maggie meets this couple, uh, meet this couple, and the posts immediately go like, we need to show everybody, like, right. what you can do. And they began demonstrating... What, what they called the, the rapping method, like knocking method, yeah. to a number of acquaintances the next year, 1849. And it, the whole thing just blew up to the point that they decided to start selling tickets just to keep people, like just to control the number of people that were trying to come and, and, and see this, as well as to fund these progressive movement, movements that they were trying to, yeah. you know, like abolition in 1849 is is the issue du jour, right? Like mm-hmm. it, we're, we're still... 10 years away from the uh, the Civil War, and all those protests aren't free. There was actually a third sister, uh, Leah, but she had uh, she was a little bit older and she had been married uh, just as this whole thing started, and she decided not to go, uh, even though she was also able to communicate with the spirit. But Kate and Maggie go off basically on a on tour, I, I suppose is the best way to put this. They tour right. all around the uh, the region, showing people that not only is is this kind of theoretical ability to communicate with spirits real, but it's able to be summoned at will. Um, it's it's not just a, a thing that happened once and went away. You can come, you can speak to uh, Kate and Maggie, you can ask them a question, and the spirit will answer you. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how are they doing this on tour then? Like, are they exposing spirits in the areas where they're touring to? To prove that this is something that's going on, or no, Charles comes with them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's always the same spirit, and so there's only so what that ends up creating is this kind of limit on esoteric knowledge that they can bring forward. However, basically Charles can go and find things out for them and bring it back as best he can, but again within within mm-hmm. limits. Mm-hmm. 
and I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the initial questions are about as frivolous as you would probably expect. There's a lot of questions about, you know, love lives and and business ventures and, uh, you know, things like that. But like the religious implications of this are extremely serious. Yeah, for sure. Like I would imagine this would rattle fundamentalist church organizations to the core. Absolutely. And there are these uh, organizations who have been preaching this for decades now that are going, see, we told you this was real. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's your proof. You can pay for a ticket and go and see it yourself. Yeah. The girls themselves had a little bit of a hard time with the whole process, uh, as you would expect anyone who became famous at 12 or 13 would. Like overnight, yeah. No different than today. There was a lot of uh, socializing. They began drinking. Yeah, uh, they became a lot more wealthy than you would expect them to become at that age. Mm -hmm. And they had a bit of a hard time handling themselves, but they were popular and they were making money and people loved them and they kind of kept on touring. Now, as early as 1850 or so, skeptics began investigating the girls, trying to see what's going on. And a few theories came up right away. The first one was that they were uh, that the knocking noises coming from the spirit were uh, the girls cracking their toe joints. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that they were somehow able to, somehow able to, on command, crack their toes loudly enough to fill the hall that they were in, that it would be heard throughout the hall. Hmm. Um, there were other theories that perhaps they were, they were hiding some sort of contraption uh, under their dresses yeah. uh, that could make a fairly loud noise. And there was, there was actually an investigator who basically accused them of, of uh, uh, I believe the way it was put was hiding, hiding behind their, their female privilege because, well, no one's going to go stick yeah. their head under their dress to see if they have a little, you know, clicking box of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but as many times as people kind of came up with tests for them and as many times as the Fox girls uh, failed them. I mean, they discovered that if you put them on a couch uh, with carpet under their feet, they couldn't reliably communicate with the spirit. So right. clearly there's, there's something, something going, going on here. Yeah. But as many times as that happened, there's a saying that um, you can't logic someone out of a position that they haven't logic themselves into. Yeah. People who are true believers in all of this stuff don't want somebody to come in and show them how it's done. No. And it comes to like confirmation bias too, right? Like you only want to seek out information that's going to confirm a pre-existing belief that you have and that you are attached to. Well, exactly. And and these girls are, are not even just sort of circumstantial confirmation of it. They are to a lot of people, potentially the most important uh, religious revelation that has occurred in nearly two millennia. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of, it's kind of a big deal for them. (laughs) kind of hard to shake somebody they're out kind of, of a big deal right now <laughs> yeah exactly in 1857 they actually tried to win a 500 dollars prize that had been put forward that was really similar to something that you'll see today mm-hmm. which is basically hey if you can prove if you can prove under our controlled circumstances any sort of esoteric phenomenon in this case communication with a spirit you get the 500 dollars um they failed mm-hmm that didn't stop them from touring. Uh, that didn't stop people from believing in them. And that didn't stop essentially the foundation of spiritualism, uh, not just in the United States, but uh, in Europe as well. Because these girls have single-handedly proven, uh, with air quotes, the existence of mm-hmm. uh, spirits beyond the veil who can speak back to us. 
and what comes out of that is just an explosion of famous mediums all of them communicated in slightly different ways with uh with the spirits that they claim to communicate with you got uh people like uh emma hardinge britain who um was instrumental in formalizing the spiritualism movement uh who spoke uh basically from a trance um mm-hmm. allowing spirits to ostensibly take control of her body and and speak through her mm-hmm. um uh, directly channeling their words channeling, yeah however it should be noted that emma hardinge britain came to america from the uk initially to write a book on the gullibility of americans <laughs> that was her explicit purpose um you get Asha Sprague, uh, 1827 to 1861, who was a trance lecturer who was credited, who credited her own recovery from rheumatic fever to intercession by spirits and would mm-hmm. tour around speaking on her miraculous recovery. I mean, rheumatic fever is a thing that does kill people, but yep. people also just get better on their own, right? There's Cora L.V. Scott. Uh, 1840 to 1923. She she went by a few different names. She married a couple of times. Um, she's also known as Cora Hatch sometimes because she was uh, that was her husband's last name at the time. Mm-hmm. She was born with a call, uh, C A U L. I don't know if you're familiar. It's basically like a membrane that covers the face of a baby when they're born. Right. It's really rare. Like uh, um, I think the stat on that was one in eighty thousand babies are born that way, and it's seen in like folk mythology as a sign of specialness of being marked somehow usually yeah. with uh, supernatural powers of some sort and she referred to it all the time understandably mm-hmm. um her parents were actually part of the early universalist movement okay um so again heavily involved in temperance movements feminism abolition all of this stuff mm-hmm. uh her father died at 13 and cora moved to new york uh, to new york on her own and by 15 was already doing shows where she would get up on stage and in a trance uh, speak on esoteric matters. Mm-hmm. And basically the draw there was that Cora was young and uh, apparently very pretty and seemed really childlike, but then would get up on stage and speak very eloquently about these uh, very heady spiritual topics. Mm-hmm. And basically the shtick was, you know, no one like that could possibly speak this intelligently. It must <laughs> be spirits. But, but I mean, that's the, that's the entirety of her, yeah. her credibility there. Yeah. Like a lot of other spiritualists uh, very early on, part of the draw here is this reference to the pet causes of the day. People liked hearing from spirits that, yes, they are right to want the abolition of slavery. Yes, they should be worried about, um, you know, overindulgence in alcohol. It's like divine validation for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if this was happening today, like you'd you'd have people getting up on stage and it's like, yes, we should stop worrying so much about bathrooms. What's wrong with you guys? Like, you know, like all of this, like they'd be hitting the same beats that progressives in general tend to agree with, right? Her first husband, uh, Benjamin Franklin Hatch, uh, she married at 16, and he was a professional mesmerist. Oh. He managed her popular career, so selling stage tickets. He taught her basically how to hustle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which infuriated early spiritualists because it turned into this spectacle, this stage show, yeah. this uh, less holy uh, thing that made her tons and tons and tons of money. Mm-hmm. and. He taught her how to work a crowd. He taught her, I'm sure, all sorts of tricks of the trade because, you know, mesmerism isn't a spiritual thing. Mesmerism is a 
uh, a trick of the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a really interesting phenomenon that most people respond to. Mm -hmm. Um, And with some training and some practice, you can elicit responses from people that seem uh, miraculous. And for this girl who goes from, you know, okay, she can do some, some, or she can speak on topics that she seems precocious on to, Mm -hmm. you know, actually understanding how to work these bigger and bigger uh, audiences. She became very popular and, and uh, very effective. And this is kind of where spiritualism runs into a bit of a crossroads because on one hand you have these groups who are going like, no, like we just learned that there is definitely an afterlife, that the afterlife exists in this way. Like this is a, this is a divine revelation and we need to uh, devote ourselves to understanding it better. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have a bunch of people who are basically vaudevillians uh, making a lot of money off Mm -hmm. of stage tricks. And by 1852, like five years after the Fox sisters start, this has already reached Europe. There are traveling mediums. There are people who are doing automatic writing. There are people who are doing uh, like all of these various tricks on stage and making so much money off of it. And it becomes this really commercial, really exploitive thing. And in the meantime, the the actual spiritual or uh, spiritualist church is kind of seething a little bit because Mm -hmm. they've lost control of this thing that is very important and very precious to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll take a break there. And uh, when we come back, we'll start talking about what these touring spiritualists were up to and sort of the the backlash against them. All right. Back on HI101 with Yumiko Hachnerther. Hello. And... Yeah, the first part took a little bit to come together, but all those pieces kind of fall into place to make for uh, a really interesting time as far as Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual phenomena go. Yeah. And just as you would kind of expect, this time period shows a marked increase in ghost sightings. You'll notice that there aren't often ghost stories that are kind of, you know, this, you know, this ghost is from the pre-revolutionary france period or whatever (laughs) there seems to be like a lot of ghost stories that come from From this time the victorian era yeah and i don't think that's necessarily uh, a coincidence i think though that what you're seeing is people when faced with unexplained things come up with the simplest or most comfortable explanation a lot of times and phenomena that might be marked as uh say demons Mm -hmm. 200 years before were now being marked as uh, ghostly spirits because there is this public fascination with the idea of ghosts human spirits that are come back after they've passed away Mm -hmm. and you know of course they're not going to be the spirits of somebody who died you know 300 years ago they're usually loved ones or if not loved ones then um you know, fairly recent history. People don't tend to think that far out of their time period. Uh, up until fairly recently, that's a that's yeah. kind of a modern phenomenon. Yeah. But yeah, that gets into these whole uh, concepts of like the perception of the passage of time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We don't need to get into all of that stuff right now. <laughs> um, but it's true, you know, you get ball lightning that's you know that's somebody's aunt and you get the the house settling and that's the footsteps of a ghost and you get you know all of all of the usual stuff that you can see on 
any Discovery Channel special, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it explodes at this point in time. It's very much part of uh, the zeitgeist that it is uh, possible for spirits to return and interact with uh, the living. On the more formalized side of things, we we, met, we mentioned uh, Emma Hardinge Britton uh, very briefly before. A lot of the work that she ended up doing in the United States was, you know, less this sort of stage charlatan style mm-hmm. uh, uh, psychic readings and more an attempt to formalize what a church that incorporates spiritualism would look like. And generally, it's it's by kind of point form laying out what exactly are the beliefs of a spiritualist church. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty simple. Basically, it's things that go along the lines of, you know, spirits are eternal, that they can communicate with humans, that there is a divine supreme being, mm-hmm. uh, that there are various stages of the afterlife, all of the stuff that we've talked about. But a lot of that is formalized around this time and and incorporated into... Like an official body. Yeah. And I mean, it's still somewhat nebulous but there's there's absolutely an attempt to found something um the the main issue there is that most of these ecstatic preachers that are going around at this point in time aren't necessarily like identifying themselves as like oh you know i'm presbyterian or i you know like there's not a like they're, they're not looking to be a part of a larger organized league generally people are following specific pastors it's about the charismatic single leader Mm -hmm. um and they end up getting kind of marked down in a more official capacity later like a few decades a few decades later Mm -hmm. but there are absolutely attempts to make that happen in the united states meanwhile you know things like that take a long time they're hard work it takes a lot of organization it takes a lot of self-reflection because this is serious religious work for these people yeah meanwhile the number of uh, stage mediums mm-hmm. is, as we said before the break, just through the roof. And the number of things that they're doing to prove their veracity, basically, are really interestingly varied. Like the number of different tricks that they're using to show people like, yeah, absolutely, I can communicate with spirits. Mm-hmm. Generally, the stage magicians will, or, or stage psychics or stage mediums, whatever you want to call them, will have a a familiar rather than communicating with uh, any spirit on demand. So they'll say like, yes, I am in contact with uh, this spirit. Here is their very interesting backstory for effect. And I will see what kind of knowledge I can get from them. Because that always kind of gives them a little bit of an out if they can't make something work. Yeah. It allows them to limit the amount of esoteric knowledge at their disposal, which is... is this then around the time of like Barnum? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely it is. Okay. So that makes sense how yeah. that would fit together. Why are you asking about Barnum? Well, I was just asking because if they're, you know, trying to gain information from a spirit source mm-hmm. and not directly themselves. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, may or may not be accurate. I'll see what I can get from like my source. Yes. Then they'd probably come up with something pretty broad and vague that people, most people could relate to or yep. find comfort or validation in yeah and barnum like the barnum effect is something famous yeah named after pt barnum the the same guy that did the the barnum brothers circus yeah. um yeah who who described the um uh the effect of like basically if you use a broad enough statement 
people are generally willing to believe, especially when they're the center of uh, attention, mm -hmm. that something relates to them personally. And so if you say, sorry, horoscopes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and so he came up with, well, not, not him specifically, but he, a, a number of different people, him being one of the most famous, came up with lists of um, statements that could generally apply to most people. And they're really useful in doing something which is known as cold reading, which is mm -hmm. if you say these things that sound really general and people go like, yeah, that is me, you can usually kind of use this sort of broad starting point to narrow down what that person wants to hear from you. Yeah. Um, and it's a really common trick used by uh, psychics. Yeah. I can't think of the name right now, but there was someone who used to do cold readings and retired. And then after that, they published a book about like all the tricks that they use, like everything hmm. that was involved. I'm, I'm not sure who you're practice. thinking of specifically, but this is actually something that's been going on since basically the inception of spiritualism is people exposing the tricks used to mm -hmm. uh, perform uh, uh, these these shows. Mm -hmm. um, Barnum Barnum statements, or you'll you'll see them under a number under a number of names. But Barnum statements are really interesting because you kind of read through the lists and you kind of make notes of which ones actually would apply to you. And a lot of them are really like they, they would they would work probably if I was yeah. more inclined to be uh, into that sort of thing. Like uh, uh, stuff like you have a scar from a childhood injury. Everyone's got a scar from a childhood injury. Everyone's you miss someone right now. Yeah. Like. Um, you, you've always thought about writing a novel. Yeah, I always like that one because a lot of people do ha like have yeah. had that thought. Like I could write, I, you know, if I had the time, mm -hmm. I think I could write a really good book. But stuff like that, you say it, and people go like, "Yeah, that is <laughs> me," and and it just draws them right in. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, lots of other tricks for cold readings, but in general, cold readings were, I mean, they were used on stage, absolutely, but mm -hmm. they were used less on stage and more in a, sort of a more intimate setting. Uh, which was also very, very popular, especially under uh, among the um, uh, upper classes. So you would hire a medium basically as part of like your dinner party, mm -hmm. right? You know, serve everyone a five course meal. And also we've got a seance afterwards. <laughs> and you would sit around this table and you'd have this medium who would contact the dead for you. That sounds so fun. It does sound <laughs> fun. It's also that these people were getting paid a lot of money yeah. to do something really, really dishonest. And, yeah. and that's kind of sad. Yeah. Um, but at these at these dinner parties... You know, a lot of times they'll have, they're, they're doing uh, warm readings, so they'll have researched their client beforehand, which makes things a lot easier. But that general um, psychic uh, bag of tricks was a little bit more common in that much smaller uh, setting. In general, the, the stage uh, uh, mediums mm -hmm. would actually just work with plants. It's much easier to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, much easier to do. So we talked about stage hypnosis already we talked about uh trance speaking which really is just saying stuff in a weird voice basically and people are like wow that's amazing <laughs> the 19th century was kind of boring i guess <laughs> automatic writing is one that i find really interesting though um the idea or the purported idea was that you're channeling the writing of spirits in sort of like a dissociative state again you kind of go into this trance you let the spirit take control of uh your your body specifically your hand and it writes out a message this is kind of a it, it ranges anywhere from basically writing with your eyes closed mm -hmm. to kind of more tricky methods of, of making this work uh, or or iterations on the idea so there was one where uh, 
uh, a medium known as uh, Helen Smith in 1900 uh, published a book of what she claimed were Martian writings. So she claimed that she was in contact with a spirit of uh, a Martian, mm-hmm. a, a being from Mars. And she published this book of, it looks like hieroglyphic squiggles. It's actually really interesting looking stuff, yeah. um, but was ultimately nonsense. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, they did some linguistic analysis on it and they they noted that the grammar was basically exactly French and the, the symbols were basically iterations on different letters. But right. it looks very convincing. It's really interesting stuff. There was also uh, an incident of writing where the uh, the medium took two pieces of um, slate, like two two chalkboards, basically, mm-hmm. and screwed them together with the slate um, facing each other. So like inside where you couldn't like get in and write and went into this trance. And, and when it was finished, there was there was writing on the inside of these slates. Hmm. Stuff like that is all very explicable by fairly normal stage magic style sleight mm-hmm. of hand and 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 uh, uh things like that but people ate it up obviously and again we're talking about a society that's very um predisposed to yeah uh, sure. wanting to believe in that stuff and 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 um again that confirmation bias it's it it's it does wonders yeah it's um, very powerful it's very powerful um we should also note that the American Civil War occurred between 1860 and 1865. Mm. The Civil War is a singularly bloody conflict. It was... Lots it, of lost loved ones. Lots of lost loved ones. The, the numbers are... I, I saw anywhere between about 750,000 dead to a million <sighs> dead within a year's time. Wow. And the United States was not a large... A country at that country time. At that yeah. point in time. I, I mean, it, it was still large enough, but... but much smaller than it is today. That's that's a lot of lost loved ones. And the thing about that level of psychic trauma, if you want to phrase it that way, yeah. is that the 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 very, very human reaction to that is to look for some sort of solace. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone faulting anyone for that. Of course you're looking for some sort of comfort, right? Mm-hmm. And when this is occurring in this climate of spiritualism, where there are thousands and thousands of people saying, yes, you can talk to loved ones who have passed, mm-hmm. that on one hand is, you know, on a spiritual level, a, a very uh, a sensitive time. Yeah. And on the level of these people who are looking to take advantage exactly, of people's belief, yeah a very easy time to take it's like it's comforting but it's manipulative and you get into ethical questions about there's there's some very strong ethical questions there yeah because i mean there's there's almost an argument to be made that even if there is no way to contact the spirit of the dead but you believe that the spirit of the dead are contacting are are being contacted on your behalf and they're telling you what you want to hear Mm -hmm. and it creates a, a, a level of closure for you and allows you to move on with your life in a, a more, uh, in a less traumatic way. Yeah. Then like is there value to that experience? Exactly. And, and, and has, that. and has the person who has outright lied to you, it, have they caused you harm? Yeah. I don't have an answer to that. This no, is a history podcast. That, yeah. That would be a very interesting debate. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think there is actually a, a like quite a bit uh, to be said on each side of that. Yeah. Personally, I, I don't like the idea of taking advantage of people's grief in that manner. But yeah. um, I imagine that there are a lot of people who uh, or for whom 
the practice of of uh, mediumship in this era, um, they they would argue was the only thing that helped them through. Kind of like psycho spiritual grief counseling, if you will. <laughs> in a certain way, sure. Because I yeah. mean, the, you know, when you sit in on a seance, you never have you know your loved one come to you and say like, you know, <laughs> they they're never mean about it, right? Yeah. They tell you all the things that you want to hear. They tell you soothing, comforting things in every single one of these. You never have someone's you know dad come back and say like, listen, I've he always been very me. disappointed in you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry, man. That's what he's saying. <laughs> I'm just the medium. I can't. I can't control this. Yeah. He says he wishes you were a doctor instead. Yeah. That never ever happens. He wants to know what happened to that one percent when you only got ninety nine percent on that test. <laughs> Where did that one percent go? Where did it go? You forgot to put your name at the top again, didn't you? <laughs> um. No, they always come to the, to the person and they say, you know, uh, uh, I wish I had had the chance to tell you I loved you more often and I'm proud of you and I, I hope you move on with your life. And it, it, like all these all these very comforting, soothing things, because on one hand, that's really helpful to the person's psyche. And on the other hand, that's what gets you paid as a medium is telling the person the thing that you want uh, that they yeah. want to hear. Yeah, like no one's paying you to like insult them on behalf of their like dead grandma. Sure. And, <laughs> and I mean, at that, there, there's there's the very real risk of shooting the messenger in this case oh yeah <laughs> in a very literal sense yeah um so yeah th these these readings are very palliative in a way um and and i i think that it's yeah you you can't talk about this era without bringing up the 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 trauma of the civil war and, and just the sheer number of people who uh were, were killed and and the uh the effect it had on on spreading um the popularity of spiritualism i mean uh, mary todd lincoln uh contacted a medium after the death of abraham lincoln mm -hmm. and asked the the medium to contact abraham lincoln on her behalf yeah. and she had a seance where she uh as far as she was concerned spoke with abraham lincoln mm -hmm. i mean yeah it, it's it's not it's not something that you know like everyone was doing it i guess is the is yeah. the point i'm trying to make there yeah there were there were lots of other you know kind of tricks that were happening at this time to, to make it seem as though these seances were were working out properly. There was something called uh, table turning that was really common at the sort of uh, more intimate seances with a small number of people. Basically, everyone would put their hands on the table and uh, it, it would either uh, rock or turn mm -hmm. um, in response to things that the medium was saying. And there's a bunch of ways to uh, achieve this. It's everything yeah. from... It's everything from the medium just tipping the table themselves, like with their hands and kind of going like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> to, um, you know, lifting the leg of the table with the, the toe of their boot and mm. kicking it, things like that, to much more complicated and, and ingenious like uh, floorboard stuff methods. Yeah, floorboard stuff. Um, my favorite one that I saw mm -hmm. was a medium who had a ring with a little hook hmm. that flipped out of the ring. And there was a spot in the table with like a little dip and mm -hmm. a little rod. And they were able to very surreptitiously uh, hook the ring into the table. What they would do is then lift their hands and the, the table would float. Oh, cool. And it would look like the table was floating because... Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 ingenious. But yeah. again, at the same time, I, I 
keep fluctuating between like the also my, maybe traumatizing <laughs> well it, no not not even that just like the the uh, ingenuity of these people versus the just sliminess of them yeah. i guess yeah um and and that's that's the sort of thing where it's kind of like wow that's 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 really smart you took a lot of people's money with that mm-hmm. some of these séances would even work without the medium touching the table at all just to show that they were not doing anything through uh what's known as the idiomotor effect mm-hmm. are you familiar with that uh vaguely yeah so there's this thing that kind of happens when people want something to move but they're not actually consciously moving it so is it the same concept as like using a pendulum yeah it's the same thing as a pendulum exactly mm-hmm. or uh, a ouija board uh, mm-hmm. uh, for that uh, for that matter yeah um sometimes without even realizing it people will move a thing themselves and think that it's happening on its own and it's through these sort of micro movements that like your brain is transmitting that command to your hands to make that movement but you like your conscious self doesn't realize that it's your uh hands or your muscles that are causing that movement to occur Mm -hmm. and some uh some mediums had realized that they could cause this to happen on like as large a level as table turning because mm-hmm. people would want the table to turn. And if you kind of put it on ball bearings and make it easy enough, people will just sort of move it on their own because it's what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the um, the Ouija board, it was invented in 1890. It wasn't the first time that uh, sort of a letter board had been used as a, a divination tool. But, you know, when when it was uh, invented by uh, Elijah Bond, it was absolutely in this climate of um, mediumship and seances and things like that. And mm-hmm. he, he made it as a game, but it was yeah. quickly picked up as a, a legitimate tool by uh, by mediums. And it also takes uh, it also takes advantage of the idiomotor effect. Um, people put the put their hands on the um, the planchette. Uh, yeah, thank you, planchette, and. Uh, they want it bad enough they'll move it to the place that they want it to move um do you know where the name ouija comes from i think you told me before but i don't remember off the top of my head now so bond claimed that the board itself had named itself oh right yeah uh, and that it was an egyptian word for uh good luck like an ancient egyptian word in real in reality probably it's the french word for yes and the german word for yes stuck together oh yeah <laughs> Yeah. One of the aspects of romanticism that we didn't really talk about in the in the first half is um, not only a focus on tradition and nature, but also sort of a reverence for the ancient that had been kind of rejected in the uh, in the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, they kind of went, wow, all these old dudes didn't know what they were talking about. We can figure <laughs> it out ourselves. In that sort of return to tradition that was part of the romantic movement, there was a renewed reverence for you know, for ancient Egypt or for uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, things like that. And mm-hmm. so the idea of like naming the board after, you know, a, an Egyptian word just added to the mystique. And it was very like in line with the aesthetic they were going for at that point. Yeah. Uh, spirit photography. That was a fun one. Photography was a relatively new thing at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, the first guy to do it, uh, William H. Mumler, did it as early as the 1860s. And he discovered it basically by accident. He double exposed a, a negative. Mm-hmm. And when he printed it out, he went, well, there's a ghost back there. Oh, no, I just double exposed this. Hey, I bet people would think there was a ghost back there. <laughs> <laughs> and in 
and then sold out. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure he's not the first person to have ever, you know, double exposed a negative. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's ever worked in uh, developing photography has probably done this at one point or another. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to do. Did you ever do photography in, in school? A little bit. Like the darkroom stuff? No. No, I did the dark darkroom stuff a little bit. Yeah, it, it happens once in a while. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, but what what he what he ended up doing with it instead was basically telling people through this sort of elaborate story that you know if if they sat in such a certain way on such a certain night with the right moon and he took a photograph of them you know that he could that he could uh you know take a photograph of their lost loved one whoever and he would just find a photograph that looked vaguely like this person he would ask for a photograph of them obviously not use the exact exact photograph but he would use a a photograph of someone who looked vaguely like that person Mm -hmm. um intentionally mess up the exposure so they were kind of smeared yeah um and when he developed the photo the person would be sitting in the place where they were sitting for the 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 portrait that they took but there would also be this this shadow standing beside uh, behind them mm. and it's like oh that's my grandpa i guess or whatever yeah. um yeah. which is really really interesting and really sneaky and kind of makes me sad a little bit yeah but again it's sad. it's that it's that whole giving people closure and i don't i don't know yeah I'm glad this is not a moral dilemma i have to deal with in my day-to-day yeah life. seriously the skeptical backlash, I mean, we talked about it a little bit with the Fox sisters, but it, it it began almost immediately. I mean, people were extremely skeptical that, you know, all of a sudden in the last five years or whatever, ghosts had just started showing up everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's really implausible and a lot of and, and and a lot of people were worried about that sort of taking advantage side of things. One of the biggest uh, communities to rally against uh, spiritualism was actually magicians hmm. and that's actually been true ever since i mean mm-hmm. there's there's still to this day magicians who make a point of uh exposing psychics and mediums and things like that which i've always found really interesting but what's really going on there is that these psychics are using a lot of the same tricks right. as, as magicians but claiming magicians, it to be real and yeah magicians if you ever ask a magician if their magic is real, they're going to tell you like, no, this is a this is an illusion. This is a show. This is a, spe- a spectacle. This is entertainment. Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to deceive to entertain, not deceive to actually like cause harm or or defraud or yeah. yeah yeah. And that's what they saw these mediums as doing, especially when the tricks were so obvious to them as far as they were concerned, because they weren't terribly elaborate tricks for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they saw the they saw these people as predators. There were also academic clubs that uh, that were really against the whole idea and sought to uh, expose as much as they could. Um, the magicians in general were actively trying to discredit. The academics in general were trying to approach the whole thing with sort of a, a very empirical mind. You know, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to assume anything mm-hmm. um, because on one hand, if I find out that it's false, then I've saved people from. Uh, fraud and on the other hand if i find out it's true this is the greatest academic discovery to have ever occurred so hey win-win yeah there was a club founded in 1855 so again we're talking about seven years after the fox sisters Mm -hmm. uh in london well at trinity college actually so not london but they called it the ghost club nice which is a very good name that is a very good name did Um, they have (laughs) t-shirts In 1862, it was like 
officially formally established. And it included members like uh, Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and like these really like prominent figures in London at the time. And they approached ghostly phenomena in this similarly like academic, like no assumptions sort of way. Mm -hmm. And they spent seven or eight years debunking a whole bunch of different uh, uh, purported mediums because they just sort of went in and poked around and set up conditions to repeat things. And yeah, nobody that they found could actually do anything that they were very impressed with. Yeah. It got to be such a problem in the United States, though, that um, there was a commission founded in 1884 uh, known as the Siebert Commission uh, out of the University of Pennsylvania. And they spent three years investigating various uh, mediums and psychics and uh, other spiritualists. And yeah, in either case, they found either proof of fraud or suspected fraud where they couldn't prove it, but they also couldn't prove that anything spiritual was happening and, mm-hmm. and they're they're like there are like relatively decent grounds for suspicion exactly um and did their best to discredit the entire movement this whole time the the actual i keep wanting to call it like the real spiritualist movement which isn't necessarily fair but like the organized the more uh religious spiritualist movement is slowly mm-hmm. gaining traction it's slowly trying to organize it's um you know, establishing its its fundamental principles, all of that. And it's going through a bit of a shakeup itself, not because of its beliefs. Um, they're, they're still fairly certain that there are real mediums out there, right. uh, just that the stage variety are not them. But also because of the uh, publication of On the Origin of the Species. Mm. Because, I mean, evolution had a big impact on a number of... Uh, on a lot of fields. Yes. But one of the problems in terms of uh, spiritualism was that if spirits are eternal, mm-hmm. then basically human nature has to also be eternal and evolution points to it not being so. And so they were trying to either discredit uh, uh, evolution on one hand or uh, others were trying to incorporate it into uh, I mean, it, the it doctrine. Ca- yeah, it kind of comes down to if you believe in dualism or not as well, right? Like, is sure. this, is is the body separate from spirit? Yeah, um, and and the implications of that as well, mm-hmm. uh, because yeah, th- that was one of the topics that that alchemy really delved into in a really interesting way. Is that they they see life and especially sentient life as being extremely special in that it's of both uh, matter and spirit at the same time. And that there's something special about that interaction, especially in, in human beings. But they never really had to face up to the idea of, of mm-hmm. evolution, right? Um, and and evolution kind of throws a bit of a... It, it creates a bit of a rift in uh, the, the organized spiritualist movement just at a time where they're barely getting started. And that really slows things down as well. Yeah. Um, and it's it's tough because... What we end up talking about for basically this entire part is spiritualism from kind of a, a huckster point of view. It's all these it's all these people who are are essentially magicians that are that are um, pretending to have spiritual insight rather than uh, the actual church itself. But the fact of the matter is the the spiritualist church pales in comparison to the social movement that was spiritualism. Right. Um, this sort of pseudo-christian 
version of of the cosmos that you know made people feel a lot better about death which you know again the ethics of that are mm, don't don't terribly want to dive into it but uh at the very least are very understandable yeah um and and meanwhile this this legitimate or or semi-legitimate uh, attempting to be legitimate churches is really struggling to find its feet uh mm. as it's getting the you know it, as it's getting its its core values knocked out from under it yeah uh, over and over again over this period they've got the traditional church against them and then you've got these people who are putting on a show mm-hmm. like taking their beliefs and kind of running with it and trying to make money off it and yeah well they're 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 pointing to the spiritualist church and going see like we're just like them and the the church is going like no 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 no. we're not like these we're not like these vaudevillians that's that's not us yeah exactly Um, and trying to establish themselves as as serious and and that's a that's a hard thing to do in this climate and then in 1888 the fox sisters who are still around a bit of a rift forms among the three of them Margaret was looking at potentially moving back to her uh, Roman Catholic uh, origins, and she was Mm. worried that some of the spiritualist stuff was maybe not so harmless. Maybe it was potentially even demonic in nature. Uh, Leah, the oldest one, was worried that Kate was drinking too much to look after her children properly. Mm. Uh, There's a bunch of snipping back and forth. All three of them are destitute at this point. They spent their money really terribly as many child stars do um and then in october of 1888 uh margaret gets an offer from a reporter for a tell-all story interesting the 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 reporter offers her fifteen hundred dollars um i did a quick uh conversion Mm -hmm. because inflation is crazy yep Uh, it's around forty thousand us dollars today wow it is not chump change no and she decides to spill the beans. She says, no, it was a trick all along. This is the person who basically single-handedly allowed the spiritualist movement, both legitimate and illegitimate, to start. She said, no, no, no. It was toe-cracking. They're right. Basically what happened was those original noises, mm-hmm. that those, those first nights back in the farmhouse, they had tied a string to an apple. They had tied some twine to an apple, and they were lifting the... The, the apple with the twine and letting it fall and when it bounced off the the floorboards it made this really weird thumping sound mm-hmm. and no one thought that a 12 year old and a 15 year old were smart enough to come up with this deceit that mm-hmm. it was a spirit to come up with these you know this this whole spelling game thing you know all, all of the stuff that they established really early on mm-hmm. they just didn't suspect them at all and and the fox sisters went oh we were bored and yeah, we were playing with what we knew and we didn't realize that it was going to turn into what it did. Yeah. Um, once they left the house, a friend of the family who was, was helping them out when they were first getting uh, established in Rochester worked with them to figure out a method of, of cracking their, their toes. And it involved like a full it's, it's hard to describe, but like a full leg motion, like from the knee down. So like hmm. the, the whole calf muscle w- went into it and they said it's like a really strange motion and they figured the only reason they can do it as loudly as they could was that they had started practicing when they were like young teenagers mm-hmm. and they had developed this muscle in their, in their calf that allowed them to snap their toes really loudly at will. Wow. And one of the things that happens when you're hearing a sound without like an obvious uh source in a large open uh setting 
is that sound kind of bounces around and it's really hard to pinpoint in an echoey setting where it's coming from. And people tend to assume a source close to themselves rather than far away if it's the right sort of sound. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people seeing this show, when they heard the crack, it sounded like it was right next to them. It sounded very close to them. Mm -hmm. Some people even described like a a physical uh, uh, sensation of something having touched them, Mm -hmm. Um, which of course is all in their head. It's all them getting keyed up because they're so emotionally attached to what they're witnessing um, combined with this, this trick of the way sound works and just the implausibility of someone being able to crack their toe so loudly that it could fill an amphitheater, right? Like it's just, it, it, it doesn't seem plausible. There was no mechanism. It was just their toes. Mm-hmm. This was bad. Yeah. Because this is the person again, that, that basically founded the movement or, or allowed the movement to be founded and the people organizing, I keep using the word legitimate, but it's the best I've got. The people organizing that legitimate church are crestfallen and i mean most of them just don't believe her yeah um especially because a year later she actually ends up recanting and and trying to go back on tour but for as many people didn't want to believe her and still believe that she was a legitimate medium and believed Mm -hmm. in the uh existence of legitimate mediums um the fox sisters themselves were never taken seriously again by the public at large and uh actually all three of them died uh destitute um, they're they're in paupers' graves. That's really sad. It is really sad. It's it's a it's a horrible thing. They started off with this game between the three of them. Yeah. And it spiraled wildly out of control and basically took over their entire lives. Yeah. It certainly didn't end the movement by any means. I mean, once something has been going for forty years, a lot of people thought that she had lied to the the reporter. They believed that she told the reporter what the reporter wanted to hear to pay out the money because Mm -hmm. she needed it so badly. Mm -hmm. And they essentially forgave her for it, I suppose is the best way to to put it. But again, it's that cognitive dissonance, right? Like you just don't want to believe that that might be the basis of your entire system of belief. Yeah. As we move into the 20th century, I mean, a a lot of kind of disparate things come together to see the spiritualist movement in general wind down there's there's definitely a a bit of an uptick during the first world war for a lot of the same reasons as the uh the american civil war there's a lot of deaths to come to grips to or Mm -hmm. to come to grips over um and a lot of people reach out to spiritualism as a way to cope with uh the number of lost loved ones there's also a couple of things that come up in the in the early 20th century The, the the most famous one that comes up is the uh uh, Cottingley fairies. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of those. Yeah. Yes. So two little girls, uh, Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths, their cousins, uh, took these photographs of themselves uh, with fairies. And it sets the spiritualist world on fire because it's this photographic proof finally like this is definitive. Um, mind you, we've been manipulating photos for 50 50 years up to this point point, yeah yeah but yeah anyone anyone who (laughs) says that photographs are good evidence for anything i kind of always think of stuff like this we've been manipulating them for a very long time yeah these these photographs it's, it's well worth looking up they're they're haunting they're they're really beautiful but everyone's basically going well these little girls couldn't have possibly faked a photograph it's so hard to do and I mean, they're going to admit decades later. I mean, the, the confession came in the 80s um, that basically they cut some dancers out of a children's picture book, drew wings on and put them on hairpins uh, suspended. So it looked like they were flying and then took the pictures for again, for fun. It's just mm-hmm. these girls playing and 
everyone gets right into it. Um, so stuff like that keeps the the movement alive to some to, to some extent. I, I think we can't finish talking about this without speaking about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Harry Houdini, uh, famously good friends uh, mm-hmm. who who were um, separated by the spiritualist movement. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle, if you remember, was originally a member of the Ghost Club. Right. He was originally a, uh, a, a skeptic. He didn't believe in the uh, in the existence of uh, ghosts or mediums. And over time saw enough seances that successfully tricked him to come around to the idea that maybe there was something to all of this. Maybe some of them were, were frauds, but maybe some of them really had what it took mm-hmm. and had been probably uh, at least privately a spiritual, uh, spiritualist ever since about 1887 or so mm-hmm. um and would eventually come out publicly as a spiritualist in the in the course of the first world war um some people attributed to the death of his uh son uh, at the at the front but it actually came out before his, his son died um yeah arthur conan doyle is an interesting one because he he had a he had a strong friendship with harry houdini who um was a magician and like most magicians was quite strongly inclined to discredit the mo- uh, the the movement especially mm-hmm. because he went to a séance after the death of his mother and was not convinced uh he he quickly discovered that this uh, uh that this medium was trying to pull one over on him yeah um and continued going to séances often in disguise i think to some extent with the hope that maybe one of them would be real and maybe he'd be able to contact his mother. But that kind of shifted to a bit of a secondary goal for him. His primary goal being to stop other people from being hurt the way that he felt he had been hurt. Yeah. And he got into quite the argument actually with uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle over, mm-hmm. uh, over the existence of, of spirits and, and the, the nature of mediums and things like that. The Cottingley fairies came into this. Uh, the two of them argued about the, the, potential for this being a, a real photograph um the, the fairies are an interesting one because i know they're a little bit of a sidestep from ghosts but it really plays into that like naturalist yeah um angle of of the romantic movement and the spiritualist era this idea of getting back to nature and there being something more to nature etc and you know this this story doesn't have like a like a happy ending sir arthur conan doyle was actually convinced that some of harry houdini's tricks were real magic and so he wasn't just mad about the sort of philosophical difference. He actually believed that Houdini was trying to deceive him over his own uh, supernatural nature. Right. He believed some of his tricks were so unbelievable that even when Houdini sat him down and like explained to him, like, yeah. no, this is how I do this. There's nothing secret to it. Come, Like, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. He thought he was being misdirected. He thought that Houdini was trying to hide mm-hmm. his own spiritual nature or his own supernatural nature. And yeah, they, they never made up before Houdini's death, which is kind of sad. That is sad, yeah. But it was still a little bit more complicated than just simply Houdini didn't believe. Um, in fact, when, uh, when Houdini died in uh, 1926, he had spoken to his wife beforehand, and the two of them agreed on a code word. And he said to her, hold a seance after I die, and if it's really me, I'll say the code word and I'll get the medium to say it to you. Yeah. And we'll see if it works. And she tried seances for 10 years after he died. 
Oh. With, I, I, I don't think she thought that it would be him. She mm-hmm. was fairly skeptical minded as well. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there was actually one medium who managed to come up with the code word. However, it turned out that he had managed to steal the code word through, uh, you know, a mutual acquaintance who had heard the, co- et cetera, oh, et cetera. And, and they figured out that he was, you know, trying to defraud them. So yeah. after 10 years, she decided that, you know, this is enough. I've, I've done this enough times. I'm going to move on with my life. Yeah. Um, and, and so as far as she was concerned, she was never satisfied that he spoke to her through any medium. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a bit of a sad story. That's a but, really sad story. Actually. But it kind of sums yeah. up the, the state of, of um, spiritualism at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as like the end of this era, it's a really tricky one to sort of pinpoint why it wound down the way that it did Mm -hmm. there's always been uh you know ever since there's been a societal fascination with ghosts and mediums and psychics and all of that right like that's Mm -hmm. that's not new or or that that never really went away i should say yeah um but there's there's a combination of a number of things i mean there were concentrated efforts to debunk all of these traveling mediums the decline of vaudeville and circuses as a, a major piece of entertainment with the rise of uh, radio has a big part in all of this mm-hmm. um you know a reduced interest in private seances by the upper upper class uh makes a big difference um even even just the general secularism of the 1920s the sort of uh you know lack of concern with uh, with spiritual matters uh, in comparison to previous uh eras sort of contributes and it's it sort of dies off to some extent and i know that feels like kind of a an ending to uh, to this entire topic but the thing is we've been very focused on specifically spiritualism mm-hmm. um that isn't all that's happening in the esoteric world during this uh this same um era and i've, I've been kind of uh, skipping over and around a lot of really prominent figures mostly because spiritualism didn't really go f- nearly far enough as far as certain members of society were concerned mm-hmm. um a lot of people looked at spiritualism and went ah, this is very very christian this is very very classic i think that there might be more to the world than all of that mm-hmm. and there's a lot more interesting and a lot more diverse things kind of uh coming down the pipe on this one so uh, i think that's probably a really good place to stop and uh next time We're going to take things to the next level. We're Mm -hmm. going to talk about some very, very familiar people and some possibly not terribly familiar groups because it gets, uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, we go a little off the beaten path. Nice. So I'm excited for that. Nice. With apologies to a relatively small group of extremely devoted followers, The spiritualist movement was largely theatrical in nature and largely Christianity adjacent. The cultural phenomenon of seeing ghosts and contacting the dead was widespread, but hardly subversive. Next time, we'll talk about the wider esoteric movement in the same time period, a full rejection of mainstream Christianity at the fringes, and a renewed interest in the occult, the pagan, and even occasionally the satanic. That episode will be up on December 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. 
If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.